Welcome to The Art of Listening, a podcast about classical music, conducting, composition, the business of music, and how to listen to it all. My name is Jeff Bradbury, and with me as always is Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how are you today? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Looking forward to this great conversation. Me too. You know, we were talking a lot recently about things that you're doing with an orchestra, and I know you recently had a uh, an orchestra summer camp. Talk to us a little bit about some of the things you've been doing this summer. Yeah, so we did the Ogden Camerata first uh, inaugural um, summer music festival. So that's the Ogden Camerata Summer Music Festival. And the... Uh, it was really, really successful. We we started off, uh, some of the students were sight reading on Monday, and we performed a full concert on Saturday, and the students played marvelous, marvelously. That is fantastic. We're going to be getting into all of that stuff today because today's topic is all about programming for your orchestra. That's right. Today we're going to be learning how to take a group, make sure that you guys have all the right pieces to it, program a concert and then give your audience exactly what they're looking for if you have any questions about this show or would like to be a part of our educational family here you can head on over to gabrielgordon.net and check out everything and always make sure that you're subscribing to our podcast over on twitter at gabriel k gordon and gabe today again talking all about an orchestra you've been a conductor for a long time now you've had an opportunity to work with orchestras of all shapes all sizes all instrumentations um when we're putting together a concert what do you look for how do you plan how far out are you thinking about all this talk to us a little bit about the basic idea of putting a concert together yeah so as far as looking how far out you're looking uh, most most programming you try to do um, over you know at least one year and you know when when you're dealing with a professional orchestra you know exactly you know who's going to be in front of you and you know what their capabilities are so that's that's much simpler than uh, say a youth symphony where you might have just auditioned the whole orchestra so you have an idea of what they're capable of as a group but again you know doing youth symphonies is actually quite a bit more difficult than doing just about anything for a professional orchestra because you you actually have a different group in front of you every single year right let's let's break this down a little bit because I, I we're going to talk today about all the difference um you know uh, possibilities of orchestras, professional, semi-pro, youth, uh, educational, etc. Let's talk a little bit about what you had just mentioned, which is if you are the conductor of a symphony. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had our friend Elliot Moron talking about how he's programming his symphony. And you had mentioned these are things that happen a year, maybe a year plus in advance, because you have to get people, you have to get a budget, you have to get a concert hall space, maybe, you know, equipment, depending on the pieces that you're doing. Right. Uh, I know you've had the opportunity to do that in the past. What is it like to say to yourself or to a board, I want to play Beethoven five, three years from now. Let's just figure out how that's going to work. What is right. that like to, play, to program for, you know, long term things? Well, it, it, you know, it just it just again, it just depends. Uh, again, if you're talking about a professional orchestra, 
uh, like the one Elliot is conducting now. Um, and, you know, you, you would probably talk about this in terms of like a bigger, you know, something that you really need to budget for and you need to really plan for, let's say, three years in advance, something like a Mahler's Eighth Symphony or... Uh, something that needs, you know, special instrumentation, more people to hire, something like that. So let's say you wanted to do Mahler's Eighth Symphony. That's something that you would program probably two or three years out uh, in order to plan for it, in order to budget for it. Um, for And by contrast, for Youth Symphony, um, like, say, in Albuquerque, what I used to do is I would program loosely for the year ahead. I would try to do the whole thing a year ahead, but also I would recognize that I might get like five or six rehearsals in and say, oh, you know, that piece for the third program is probably not going to work for this orchestra. It's too easy or it's too hard or something like that. Um, and then there are special cases like in Albuquerque, when I realized that the Albuquerque Youth Symphony was actually the first youth symphony to perform and record the uh, the great piece Carmina Burana, and that the 50th anniversary of that performance uh, was coming up, I said, you know what, um, you know, I guess I'm going to I'm going to definitely need to program this uh, for the next year. And so you start, you know, you start preparing for that and, okay, am I going to have the instrumentalist to be able to do it? And you figure that out and then you go from there. So it really depends on the situation. You know, are you going to have the players? What are the capabilities of your players and what's going to bring an audience in and what kind of situation you're in? If it's educational, then you want to make sure that this is a piece that's good for your students to learn, not just for the audience to listen to, but for your students to learn. Well, let, let's focus on that one now, right? Because when yeah. you are doing this, um, you know, it is that balance, right? Are we doing an educational piece because I want to be teaching a certain skill? Am I going to be programming for an audience because that's what pays the bills and we need to make sure people are in their seats? Are we programming it because it's that time of year and everywhere, like you might've said there, um, you know, we do these pieces routinely because that's what we do. Or, you know, maybe, you know, we've been in or we've been in orchestra situations where we're going to be teaming up with a local choir to do an opera. And right. so let's make sure that we're planning that a, a little bit. Many people listening to this might not understand what goes into programming, right? right. Um, so let's take a look at this from the conductor point of view, from the, the board point of view. Um, if you were putting together a program, let's not worry about the level yet, but if you were putting together a program and say, um, I want to do a Beethoven piece and a Mozart piece and a Vivaldi piece, um, how do you know that these pieces go together? How do you know yeah. how many instrumentations that they need, how long it is, that the difficult... I mean, it's easy to program the Philadelphia Orchestra. Whatever you want, they can handle it. They've got the budget. We don't all have that situation. So where do you go to figure out all that stuff? Oh, so there is a wonderful, wonderful resource 
that uh, most of my friends have. I, I, I know you have it. It's uh, a book by a great conductor named David Daniels, who uh, has compiled all the instrumentation and timing. And, you know, timing is also really important. You don't want to, uh, you know, have a wonderful program that also lasts for four hours. Nobody's going to stay for something like that. So you want to make sure that you're, you know, programming an appropriate amount of time for your audience. And as well, you want to make sure that the pieces fit together to tell a story. So uh, one of my great resources is to go into Daniels and say, okay, I know I've got this instrumentation and this amount of time to tell this kind of story. And it takes a whole lot of research. I myself, I put a huge amount of effort and time into programming uh, just because I realized it's it's actually like kind of half the battle when you're talking about rehearsal, when you're talking like, OK, so you want to have one piece on the program. If one piece on the program is something that's you know particularly difficult for the orchestra, you probably want to put something else on the program. That's what we call a gimme uh, for for the orchestra. And, uh, you know, have all of that fit in because you have a limited amount of rehearsals, whether you're talking about a youth symphony or you're talking about a professional orchestra, you have a limited amount of time to 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 do stuff, to to get things sounding good. So that's another consideration that goes in there. So we talked about time. We talked about instrumentation. Let's talk about the human aspect of this, because, as you said, there is a time aspect. And, you know, you and I don't fully understand this because we're string players. Um, And what I mean by that is you have to leave your house with your timpani and you are only being used in one piece, yet you need to pack your timpani. So talk to me a little bit about programming for the people, right? It's one thing to say, we're going to do a symphony and I need a drum and a tuba and this or that, but you might only need them for five minutes. Do you rehearse all of that? Do you not? Does it depend on the level? I mean, if you're in a youth symphony, you can't make a kid spend $1,000 to be a youth symphony member, but you're using them for one piece. Right. Yeah, no. So that's that's something I was just going to talk to you about. Like, you know that you have to include each and every single student. If, uh, you know, a percussionist mostly gets the night off, in a professional gig, well, he gets paid or she gets paid, you know, the same amount as everyone else. They're like jumping for joy. If uh, if you do the same thing to a student there, you know, they have to stay in the classroom for the entire time. And they're like, well, I'm bored. So those things need to balance out. One little trick that I have used in the past. Uh, here's a great example. Uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is a piece that if a youth symphony can learn something like that, they really should learn something like that because none of them have ever played it before. And it's a great experience for them to be able to do it. But what if you have four percussionists that are also in there? There's only one percussionist needed for the entire symphony, and that's timpani. So what I've done before is I I actually brought... Uh, I brought Beethoven's Fifth on tour uh, to Austria, 
and I programmed other pieces where all four of the percussionists were involved. Uh, but when we performed the symphony, each one took a turn at timpani. And uh, you can imagine actually, you know, how that was between the third and the fourth movement, which one goes straight into the other. There was actually a, a little adventurous handoff in there. So, you know, that's, you, you make do with what you've got. What, what does that mean? They each had their own timpani and they were only responsible for that one drum the entire night? Or? No, no. So each movement, each movement has, uh, you know, three timpani that are involved and each percussionist took one movement each. Uh, for, that makes more sense. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't make that clear. No, no, no. I mean, it's something that we don't think about as string players. You play everything. And sometimes right. you don't realize that you're the third oboe player and you're not needed or you're, you know, mom drove you here and you're like, well, you're going to be playing in two and a half hours. Go, go sit down or something like that. Right. It right. is difficult. And, you know, as a, as a high school orchestra director, the answer is you make sure everybody plays. So, you know, when I was doing high school orchestra for 10, 15 years, the answer was you play everything that ends with Williams and you play everything right. that ends with Newbold and you play everything that ends with, because then everyone's going to be active constantly and it's okay oh, to have I've two timpani if you can afford them. Yeah, no, I mean, I've had, I've had people come to me and say, why are you always programming things for, you know, the late 19th century and the 20th century? Why don't you do Bach for instance? Why don't you do, you know, stuff like that? And they said, well, I got to include everybody. Right. I can't, you know, I can't always do, you know, something like that. If I'm going to do Bach, I'm going to do the Stokowski version of, of, you know, the Prelude and Fugue because that includes everybody. And so for the most part, when you're dealing with a youth symphony, you are going to program in that area um, just to just to make sure you you include as many people as possible. So let's break that orchestra down, right? You just got done doing the Ogden Camerata concert series. I, I saw a, a few great streams out there. And right. the Ogden Camerata by design is strings only. Right. Um, not fair for woodwinds and brass because when, uh, you know, when you need it, those instruments aren't always included in things. The string players got a lot more gigs in the last 12 months, I would assume, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's just because with the nature of the pandemic, when you're a wind player, uh, it makes it more difficult uh, for for you to be able to play under those circumstances. And uh, the string players are able to play fully masked. So, yeah, a lot uh, there were as few gigs as there were. The string players did get more. So you have your string group. And you're putting together a program. Are you looking, and, and let's specifically talk about Ogden. Do, are you specifically looking for three or four pieces? Are you looking to go fast piece, slow piece, fast piece? Are you looking for overture, solo type piece, everybody plays type piece slash march? <laughs> like, what, yeah. What, what, what into programming a strings only concert, a strings only piece? And yeah, let's keep in mind that everybody had to stand 100 feet apart. Yeah, it, it, it becomes actually a really, really big challenge. And uh, I, I think a lot of people don't realize just how much we depend on the stand partner 
relationship. Um, so during the pandemic, there were no stand partners. Uh, we had to be six six feet apart. And so everybody had their own stand. That changes things for page turns. That changes things for being able to listen to each other. That changes things in, in all sorts of ways. So this year, I actually did a lot of standard repertoire um, just to keep things, you know, a little bit comfortable. At the same time, I wanted to give the students a, you know, a unique experience. Um, so we did a few unusual things. We did actually two world premieres uh, throughout that. But luckily, I knew the composer and I said, hey, you got to take into consideration that they're going to be six feet apart and that, you know, their page turns are going to be different and that they're students and uh so you know we were able to work within those parameters for those pieces i'm curious was he able to print off the pages so that way they change at different times even though it's the same first violin section so yeah i he he made sure that the page turns were better than they normally were <laughs> put it that way <laughs> put it that way and, and you know the the technology is becoming more and more prevalent i actually had two two students who had uh ipads and and foot pedals in there along with myself that's kind of cool now yeah. When you were programming, were you looking at that from the, I've got a group for a week, let's just get through this? Are you looking at that from, um, I'm using this to teach my group something? Um, are you looking at that as, we're going to learn this piece together because it's going to show up sometime in the future? Like, you know, you always do that one harder piece because right. that way it's less time later. Or, um, you know, mom and dad are going to like whatever they like because it's their little kids up there having a good time. Like, what was the thought behind each of these pieces? I saw that you recently did the Bach A minor with the soloist. Was there yeah. a reason behind that? So, yeah, no, the, the reason for that actually was simply, and, and this has to start in your program it certainly was true in albuquerque um i did a competition and the soloist won the competition with that piece and in albuquerque uh we had three soloists per year and so i actually programmed completely around those soloists because those were the pieces i knew were uh you know they were already set uh for the year because we had the competition uh in may uh, before the school year was out. And so I knew that, you know, these students were going to perform these pieces uh, throughout the year. So that's that's just what I started with uh, every single year. And, you know, sometimes that's just what you what you have to start with. That is difficult, right? I remember working with you at our previous strings camp and we heard these people auditioning on the Symphony Espanol and all these, and it was like, it's a strings camp. So even right. though it was a really, really good audition and we want you, you have to learn another piece. That's well, I told, yeah, I mean, I told I told every single soloist um, audition on what you're comfortable with and what you want to. But, you know, depending on the situation, I can't guarantee that we're going to do it. So, it, you know, it depends on uh, if if it's a rental piece and how much the rental is and if, you know, it's within the budget. For that it also has to do with the capabilities of the string players more than one clarinetist i had like i was so gifted with 
um, wonderful, wonderful clarinetists every single year in Albuquerque. And some of them wanted to do uh, the Copeland Clarinet Concerto, which is probably one of the hardest accompaniments in the repertoire. And I just, I just said to them, I said, you know, go ahead and audition on it. I can't guarantee that we're going to be able to do it. I have to hear auditions next year and see, <laughs> you know. I, I think I remember learning that one up at Madomic. And uh, that is not an easy piece to learn. I believe no. it's, it's not in 4-4 constantly, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, 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 you know for, for, for us, we can, we can learn it as conductors. But if the, the players in front of you are just not up to it, um, it's it's not going to be a good experience for the students. It's not going to be a good experience for the audience. And the soloist is going to be frustrated because, you know, the, the students aren't quite up to it. So it's really best for all concerned if we make a change there. So it's the night of the concert. You've done your rehearsals. You put your stuff together. Checks are in your pocket, ready to go. It is time for the performance. Um, what is it like for you as a conductor um, that night of you're proud of what you've put together and now it's time for you to go out and present, right? There are times where you go out to the orchestra, you put your stick up and you play the piece and then you put your stick up and you play the next piece. And then there's times where you have to turn around and actually speak to the audience. Talk to us a little bit about that. Um, that is something I, I, I will say you're, you're, you're good at. And what is that like, you know, programming it for the people, explaining it for the people, what advice do you have? Do you say, this is why we did this piece? Or do you just say, Beethoven wrote the symphony when? Like, talk to us a little bit about the vo the vocal visual, because people do call it a performance. You are there to perform. You. Well, That's for sure. And and what, what I like to do in order to make it easier for me to talk about it, really, um, is to tell a story. And to tell a story with the music and... Uh, I think I think that's really really important. Uh, you know, people have sometimes said, "Boy, you you make life really difficult for yourself because here's a piece that's uh, is good in every other way that we were just talking about. It's it's within the budget, it's within the wheelhouse of the capabilities of the orchestra. Um, it sounds good. It's going to bring the audience in, but I'm not completely satisfied with that. If it's not really within the bounds of the story that I'm trying to tell, I try to find another piece that fits within that so that, you know, I, first of all, I think it's more engaging for the audience when you're actually telling a story. It's not just uh, overture, concerto, intermission, symphony. Um, it either has some sort of theme that talks about uh, love, or it talks about war, or it talks about, um, you know, something else. And even in some cases, there is, there, there is a literal through line of, um, of a narrative that you can bring uh, to the entire program. And so when I turn around and I talk about it, I'm just talking about the story that I, you know, help to bring together, I didn't exactly make it up, but that I'm bringing together with the music and it makes it really easy to talk about. And yes, provide some historical and narrative, you know, uh, perspective to the whole thing. 
So that's the good answer for your concerts. What about for your musicians? When you're doing those rehearsals, when you're at that first rehearsal, do you take the time or do you often take the time to sit there to the to your orchestra and say, this is the concert, this is why we're choosing it? I mean, it seems like every orchestra I've ever been in, it's just, here's your music, we're going to start. And maybe we'll do the little history lesson, but there's I, I don't remember a lot of conductors giving us the educational versions of, here's why we're pro programming this whole concert well in the case of students um either in a community orchestra or in a youth symphony i would take the time to fully explain uh what my thinking was behind it uh in terms of professional orchestras um i would probably take maybe five minutes at the first rehearsal uh to talk a little bit about it in order to give them the context uh, you know, I think I think that's important for for the pros to do uh, and to know about. Um, but you want to make sure that you don't talk too much because otherwise you're going to start to get the shifting in the seats and the eye rolls after a little bit. Um, because, yeah, I mean, they're in the end, uh, you know, they're there to, to do a job and you want to give them the context for them to be able to perform uh, for what you want them to do uh but at the same time they don't need that much context so let's wrap up i have a couple questions for you here and uh i want you to be as honest and open with this conversation as possible favorite okay piece to, your favorite piece to perform with an orchestra it could be professional semi-pro whatever but famous piece to program if you had unlimited everything and it's your concert what's on it He's yeah, swearing. I <laughs> um, Canon and D. Come on, <laughs> for, not, full, for, for full symphonic Berlioz Orchestra. I can tell you what it's not. It's not Canon and D. Sorry, um, but I, you know, I guess I guess I have some dreams about you know pieces that I haven't conducted yet. Okay, um, like Mahler two. Um, and I've done the Adagietto to Mahler five, but not the the entire thing. Uh, really, when it comes to programming, I love programming pieces that I've done like ten times before, but in a different context. Right. So you know, it just it just really really depends. Uh, you know, it's kind of like asking me, you know, what's my favorite piece to perform? And the answer generally is it's whatever I'm working on. You're avoiding uh, the question. I'm sorry. I, I am avoiding the question. I I am totally avoiding the question. The, the New York the, the New York so Philharmonic has called. So much to love, you know. The New, York, the New York Philharmonic has called. They said the pandemic is over and we want you on the first concert. What what is the piece that you're going to do? No, you know what? Okay, that's a great story actually <laughs> because like um the first time that Simon Rattle uh got asked to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic uh, it was before he was music director. This is a great story. Uh, and uh, they told him, and as is very often done, they said, we'd like, you, we'd like to invite you to come conduct the Berlin Philharmonic, and we'd like you to do an all Brahms program. And he very politely and gracefully refused. And he said, I, I, I'm so sorry, but I, the first program that I'm going to do with a German orchestra is not going to be Brahms. I... <laughs> 
<laughs> I thank you for the invitation, but I'm not going to do that. And you know that that really depends. So it's like you know doing Dvorak American with the New York Philharmonic. No, that's the orchestra that premiered Dvorak American. I'm sorry. Um, I would love to do that with them, but Mahler. Uh, you know, Leonard Bernstein, you know, really brought Mahler to the fore with the New York Philharmonic and so on and so forth. Uh, Dvorak, I, I would say with a group like that, it would be something that's well within my wheelhouse in order to be able to work well with them. I mean, that's kind of where I am in my career. Right? Okay, so you're avoiding the question. My answer yeah. is simple. It, it, yeah. History aside, yes. if, I had, if I had that one opportunity... Yeah, it would be the piece that inspired me to take a, to to pick up the stick, which was Carmina Burana. I will always remember, and this was this was the story: sitting first chair viola, yeah, and in Westchester, we did it as the opening of our new concert or renovated new concert hall, yeah. and I I just looked up and said, "That's what I want to," and I never had the opportunity to even come close to the Carmina Burana, but you know, if ever given the opportunity in one shot with the, you know, if I if I had that one phone call. Yeah, that would be it. I've done the, I've done Beethoven nine twice. I would love to do it for real. Right. Um, I've done, you know, rehearsals and stuff like that. But, but no, for me, Carmina. Now, next question for you. And you can't avoid this one. All right. All right. Um, biggest mistake in programming. Did you find a piece? You're rehearsing a piece and six weeks in you went, oh, crap, this is not going to work. Or, oh, this Oh, the oboe player can't play this. Or what, what's been your biggest, you know, mistake, regret, oopsie, something maybe you tried to program that you're like, no, nope, this is not making it. We're gonna slash this one early. You know, the the only thing that comes to mind is something is is actually an opinion I don't agree with anymore. <laughs> so with with Albuquerque, there was one time. Uh, it was the concerto was the Mendelssohn violin concerto. So I decided to do like a heavy, uh, you know, late 19th century uh, program along with the Mendelssohn. And uh, we had just done uh, the tragic overture in Madamek the, the, the uh, summer before that. Um, so I really wanted to, you know, conduct it. And I thought this orchestra would play it great, which they did. But then I also programmed Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, the entire symphony, um, which is nearly an hour long uh, with the group. And I, and I remember Dale, who was actually, he was still music director at the time, uh, coming to me and say, really, are you sure? That's, that's a really big program. And we were in the process of rehearsing and I felt, I felt the kids, you know, really kind of feeling the weight of the program. And by the time the program was order, uh, was over, uh, Dale came up to me afterward and it said it went really well, but you know, you could see that the kids were tired, uh, by the end of it. And I agreed with him and I agreed not to over-program like that um, ever again, which I didn't uh, after that. Um, but then recently there, there, I went back and I found there is a, a video online 
of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. And I listened to the whole thing. And you know what? The kids played the heck out of it. <laughs> they really, really did. And uh, so I thought in the end, it was a great experience for them. But otherwise, I really, I'm, I'm so careful. I, I like to think of uh, like if this individual bassoon player is going to be able to perform this solo uh, within the program and how how all of that is going to work. I get down to the details of the individual personalities as well as the individual uh, capabilities of each person. You know, like, okay, I'm going to give this solo to this oboe player specifically because it's just a little bit beyond what their capabilities are, and I'm going to encourage them during this concert cycle uh, to be able to do it. I think when you get down to that kind of nitty-gritty um, you're you're probably not going to overprogram all that much. Lastly, and thank you for being honest about that one. Um, biggest advice you could give a new music director, new teacher, new anybody uh, walking into a brand new group. It could be Simon Rattle going to Berlin Philharmonic, right? But advice for working with a new group. Oh, that's. That's great because uh, I'll be I'll be um, honest again. Uh, probably my biggest mistake in conducting um, was going to a new group, and because they were a fabulous professional orchestra, they were like a, a, a level two uh, on the professional level. You know, not quite New York Philharmonic, but um, on that level, I figured I could, uh, you know, just kind of, you know conduct, you know, do do my Carlos Kleiber imitation uh, in front of them. And the important lesson that I learned there was, you know, you need to get to know the orchestra first before you do stuff like that. It's the same exact thing with programming. It's the same exact thing when you're first meeting an orchestra, shake their hand and get to know them. And, you know, don't necessarily do anything fancy uh, with them right off the bat until you know what their capabilities are what their personalities are what their wheelhouse is you have to get to know it, it knowing an orchestra is like getting to know a person and you really have to develop that relationship before you start uh really delving into what their capabilities are and uh it's it's probably one of the most important aspects if you have any information on this topic you'd love to share with us, we would love to learn from you guys. This is the Art of Listening podcast. He is Gabriel Gordon. I am Jeff Bradbury. And, of course, you can check out all the great archives over on GabrielGordon.net. Gabe, thanks so much for sharing all these great tips and tricks with us. I know it's been good going down memory lane for us. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what's going on on your YouTube channel this uh, summer. You've been doing some pretty neat things uh with uh, with Wolfhard and with weddings, what can we look forward to uh, checking out on your YouTube channel? We can look forward to more Wolfhard. Um, I think I'm up to number eighteen at this point, uh, and uh, I am going to do uh, a few more videos on some of the uh, wedding processionals and recessionals that we've been talking about. And um, also, I'm going to be putting up. Uh, some practice videos, uh, very short practice videos um, 
because I'm challenging myself to do uh, 100 days of practice. And you can come right along with me on that little journey as well. Very, very cool. And that wraps up this episode of the Art of Listening podcast. Don't forget to check us out. Hit that subscribe button and let everybody else know that we are here. On behalf of Gabriel Gordon, my name is Jeff Bradbury. Enjoy the music.